So this morning we continue with our theme over this ordinary time of spiritual formation over a lifetime. Looking here at the formation of Peter over his lifetime and this morning taking some time to think about the role of suffering in our formation into Christ-likeness. So probably the first thing to say is that suffering will come over our lifetime to all of us and or to people whom we love. So I just wanna say before I start that uh, I, above all people in this room, understand that I am walking on sacred ground here and that there is nothing more difficult, nothing more mysterious to life than suffering. I mean, maybe birth, but you know, we're not really, we don't have the kind of consciousness as we swim around in our mother's womb that we have now. And in that little bridge between life and death, not quite the same sort of you know, consciousness. We have a type of consciousness, but not the kind now where we can judge our lives, judge each other, judge God. And so I just think suffering sits just right near the pinnacle of human life and how human life works under God, how it's meant to work under God. So I just want you to know that nothing I have to say this morning is meant to be trite or to have some ditzy little answer that makes it all good. It's about as hard as it gets, but let's face it. So because this is about as hard as it gets dealing with suffering, it's a significant source of spiritual confusion. And I would say that as I observe many decades now of working with Christian people, that it is a, it is a primary means of eroding confidence in God. That when someone suffers for the first time or deeply profoundly or something, there is nothing that challenges more our confidence in God. And thus, formation in Christ cannot move consistently forward without squarely facing the issue of suffering and any beef that you have with God that flows from it, right? It's, 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 it's nice to say suffering erodes confidence in God. That sounds sort of pleasant, you know? I mean, that's a nice way of putting it. It's a little more robust to say that often suffering causes us to have a beef with God. And then it's really hard to follow someone you have a beef with. And this is why best we can, we have to try to wrestle this to the ground. So the passage this morning, the suffering that's involved here is not the kind of suffering that would come from cancer or I broke my leg or my kid's a drug addict or somebody I love who got in a car accident. It's not that kind of suffering. It's suffering more for innocent reasons, for keeping the faith, for being identified with Jesus, for sharing in his suffering. But it allows us to think about suffering in the wider point of view. What's happening here is more of a social kind of pressure. And those of you who have been following us in this series in Peter, I just really hope you catch this. The very sort of social pressure that caused Peter to deny Christ. Peter now has like grappled with it and he now gets it. And there's a sense in which he's on the other side. I don't mean perfect, I'm sure he wasn't, but I would just invite you all to note here that progression in spiritual life is possible. That the Jesus we see unable to say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus and suffer for it is now somebody who has worked his way through a completely different view of God and himself and how suffering works. So just note that progress in Christ is possible, even major progress in Christ. So suffering, of course, raises the question, why? And particularly probably for these people, for Peter's first hearers, it might have gone something like this. Really? In this post-resurrection world in which Satan is supposed to be defeated? 
like the byproduct of that is we're suffering. Are you tracking with me here? I mean, the resurrection was supposed to be like, you know, the end of all this and putting aside of God's enemies. And now we're suffering and like being told that we should just bear with it. I'm sure raised questions like, is God aware of my suffering? Does he care? And maybe we think something like this, doesn't suffering interfere with God's will for me to make me happy? Now, this is one of the things that I think we need to just stop and try to notice. How much that our intuitive thinking about God is that the point of our relationship with him is that he's meant to make me happy. Or we might use words like content or something like that. But what if what God thinks he's doing is using the issues of our life to develop and refine our faith? What if he's got a whole different end to which he's pointing? Or maybe they wondered, like many of us do, is God good if he allows suffering to happen? Or, you know, the other side of it, or maybe God's just weak and he can't prevent suffering. You know how that goes. Or some people might say, well, okay, maybe there's some really complicated way of explaining all this, and, and there is. Many, many books have been written on um, what is known in theology as theodicy. Theodicy is just simply the attempt to reconcile these facts that seem to be irreconcilable. There is horrible suffering in the world. God's supposed to be all good. He's supposed to be all powerful. Those things can't be reconciled. And theodicy attempts to do that. It's just, it's a way of trying to answer that big question. And it's been happening from the first century to, I was just telling Beth this morning, you know, these issues of faith groups that we've been doing. In every single issue of faith group we've done, the issue of why is there suffering was prominent. So this goes like all the way back to Peter and comes all the way into our day today. And so, you know, what we think is, well, there might be some complicated theological way of explaining all this, but it still leaves me in emotional, physical, or spiritual pain. So what good is your theodicy? But think about this. But if there is no God, as we're constantly invited to believe by that rationale, right? You can't have suffering in a good and powerful God. Therefore, there must not be God. That, that's what that's meant to say. Well, then the question isn't things like why do innocent children suffer in war or refugees or starve to death? If there is no God, the question is why not? Now, I want you to catch this. The notion of God is the only reason we think that there shouldn't be suffering. Without the notion of God, suffering would just be seen as natural, sort of Darwinian. It's just a survival of the fittest, of course. Debbie and I got one of those fancy new Blu-ray players. I don't remember exactly what they're called now but apparently it enables us to watch TV in higher definition. And so my son has been insisting that we watch this series of DVDs called Planet Earth. Have you seen it? I mean, the footage is amazing. I mean, it is a, an amazing piece of art. It's incredible. But I tease the kids, we might as well just call it mating and eating, right? And so what happens in the mating? You know, the big bulls, you know, hash it out, and then one of them gets to mate. What happens in eating? The big things eat the littler things. And so if there is no God, why isn't that just life? Life amongst humans. But the notion that there is a God that lingers in all of us is what makes us have to come to some sort of resolution on this. Well, I appreciated my friendship with Dallas Willard for a lot of reasons, not least the fact that he was a philosopher and that he helped many of us to try to think our way through these things along with uh, the theologians, 
And Dallas used to say that in solving this dilemma, the first step is to affirm a universe that permits the development of moral character, a universe which makes it possible for persons to become the treasured sort of beings that they sometimes do become. And to think that that value of persons being able to become really amazing people is of greater value than any world which does not allow such moral and spiritual development. And all Dallas, I think, meant to say was something like this. Of all the ways that God could have superintended human history, from pre-creation, divine intention, all the way to its fulfillment and its telos, and and the completion of, of God's mind, that of all the ways he had to work that out, we just have to come to believe that the one he chose is the best for his purposes. Because you see, a world that allows for the kind of moral development or spiritual formation that you're seeking has to allow human beings to be free, free to both love and serve or to hate and harm. And therefore, this allows us to see evil in the context of the good that God achieves in in permitting but never doing moral evil. So there's some greater good that God is shooting for here. And once we begin to think this way, it allows us to see the larger world of a great and good God who has all eternity and the resources beyond our wildest imagination to ensure that the life of every individual who suffers in whatever way is ultimately a life that even that individual will one day receive with gratitude. You see, in the vision that Jesus Christ communicated to his people, all human beings and even sparrows and lilies are effectively cared for. Think of things like, I'll be with you or attending angels, or God with us, as he promised, in suffering. The notion here is that that is the soil for the making of saints. So you probably, or many of you probably know the name Philip Yancey, one of the most prolific writers of my generation, at least. And if you know any of Philip's writings, you know that he's been very honest over a long career now of his own issues and coming to faith and finding faith and wrestling with precisely these sorts of issues and others. And one of the reasons I think he's so beloved is he's been able to pull together suffering and big God questions together with formation and and evangelism and those sorts of things. So he's been very public about his own struggle to find faith. Well, one of his mentors, uh, I think the prime mentor of his life, if I'm right, was a man called Dr. Paul Brand, uh, who lived most of his life in India and was a very famous Christian doctor Uh, leading the way in helping us not only rethink leprosy, but to treat it differently. So when Brand died, uh, Philip was asked to write an article in Christianity Today, he did, in which he begins to wonder about how in this fallen world in which religion and Christianity make less and less sense for a growing number of people, Philip says, I saw in Dr. Brand, now you just have to get this, God can still make one of these. There's a lot of crap in this world. There's a lot of bad stuff. But look at Dr. Brand. The soil that produces the weeds of evil is the same soil that's capable of producing the flowering of saints. And seeing Dr. Brand, Yancey says, I saw a shining example of what God had in mind in the creation of humanity. The Christian life I'd heard was possible in in theory I saw in Dr. Brand. He achieved success without forfeiting humility. He served others sacrificially and emerged at the end of his career with joy and contentment. Just think about that, working every day with leprosy and coming to the end of it with joy and contentment. 
Truly, I believe that God brought Brand into my life so that I could take all the time in the world to examine one human being and learn what God had in mind with the whole creation experiment. No one has affected my life more. No one's affected my faith more. And then I love this sentence. You only need to meet one saint to believe. Well, on June 19th, three weeks after suffering a mild stroke, Brand stumbled backwards downstairs at his home while carrying a box of books. He suffered several deep gashes on the back of his head and a blood clot formed in his brain. He did not uh, regain consciousness after surgery to remove the clot. Now we can go right back to, that's how a great servant of God dies? Like, wouldn't a great servant of God, wouldn't you expect that, I, I don't know, angels would come down or something and just sort of swoop him up and, you know, would never taste death. But the humility of he fell downstairs and knocked himself in the head, like that's how a great saint dies. And this is where the proverbial rubber begins to meet the road, where we all have a monumental decision to make. Either that God is not a good deity and not to be trusted, not to be followed, not to be worshiped, or we see everything in the light of the coming judgment and justice of God. And we live life knowing that the ultimate outcome is not in doubt. And that if the lilies of the field are cared for by God, then to a million degree more, so are suffering little children and that sort of thing. And they may have only had a little life of a couple days or a couple months, but in eternity, that life is indespicably good and great and awesome. And that when they begin to see things in the totality of creation to fulfillment, and they begin to see God's purposes in the whole cosmos and their role in it, even they will give thanks to God for that little life. And that's what causes Peter to say this isn't a moralism. This is kind of a, okay, so then this is how it works when he says, therefore, now just entrust yourself, commit your whole life to your, just if you got your bulletin there, just note those two words, your faithful creator. Just entrust yourself to your faithful creator and continue to do good. So again, that, that's not like a moralism, but it's an invitation to trust God about what it means to be his cooperative people, even in the midst of pain and suffering and its accompanying confusion. Well, again, so much more to say so much more we could have done with our gospel reading this morning, but I want you to look at the gospel reading as a way of just bringing this to a conclusion. Now, this is that famous uh, conversation between Jesus and Peter, you know, where it kind of goes from high five, rock, you know, nice work, you know, high five, you got it, to get thee behind me, Satan. I mean, right, like highest highs, lowest lows, and to him being confused about the suffering that Jesus announced for himself. It made no sense to him because suffering, even for Peter, he was not stupid. Suffering does not work naturally in an equation with a good God. And it certainly didn't work for any messianic expectations. And so Peter's confused about it. And paraphrasing, essentially, Jesus says something like, Peter, you just don't yet understand how God works. You just don't quite get yet how the whole cosmos is fueled by and saved by the God who suffers with and among his creation. 
that suffering is somehow part and parcel to the whole creation, a part of the soil out of which both good and evil comes, and that God is both the creator of, utterly other than, but totally sort of in and with that soil. And so Jesus then explains to his disciples, here's the way this works. If anyone would come after me, you're going to have to learn to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Now, we probably heard that text in all kinds of different settings, but let's put it in, in this setting. So deny yourself. So it goes something like this. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. Like, Peter, you're going to have to think I actually know what I'm talking about here. Because if you don't, if you don't let me lead here precisely through the suffering I'm going to, you can't get out the other side to God. Tom Wright in his little commentary on Peter likens this to like learning to swim. And I, I thought of it as like, you know, how little kids hold on to the, you know, the sidewall. Tom puts it as, you know, like a little kid, you know, standing in, you know, like water up to his or her chest or something. And they've got their feet on the ground, but they're beckoned by the swim teacher to like, you know, you know, come on, let's go. And take your foot off the bottom of the pool. Like, take that risk. Like, some of you who don't really like to swim, have you ever been at the beach or in a lake or something, and you're walking, and suddenly you realize your feet aren't touching? There's got to be people in this room who that's really petrifying, because you really don't like swimming, right? And all of a sudden, you realize, my feet aren't touching anymore. What does this mean? And it means something like, you have to lose your footing and able to find it. The only way you're going to find it is to deny that kind of self-assured sort of footing and find a different footing in me. And you're gonna have to, you too are gonna have to take up your cross to not run from suffering, but to embrace it. And then he says to follow me, meaning I'll show you how to do this. Like I know this is really hard. This is completely counterintuitive to deny yourself and to actually embrace suffering. That's just, that's not intuitive to any human being ever in any time who's ever lived. And so Jesus knows that we're going to have to work our way through this. And so he says, follow me, I'll show you how. Because if you look at me, if you remain in self-help, trying to keep your own feet on the ground, you know, things are going to happen. Waves are going to come through life. And, and sometimes your feet are going to be lifted off the sand or off the bottom of the lake. And in those moments, you're going to have to learn to follow me, that you're not going to be able to do this through sort of self-help. But I'll show you how that self-sacrifice is the way. How self-sacrifice is my way, Jesus would say, to finding yourself your truest self. So as we come to a moment of quiet here, I want to take you back to that sentence from Philip Yancey regarding Dr. Brand. When he said, you only need to meet one saint in order to believe. So who is that for you this morning? Who's the one saint that's been in your life you know, it could be a parent or a grandparent, a teacher. It could be somebody you've read about in a book. Who's that one saint that allows you to believe? And then maybe you could wonder, what about them would you like to imitate? What is it that you find compelling about them that you'd like to imitate? Maybe now you could just take a moment to thank God for this person, this saint who grew out of the soil of human suffering.